10 minutes. World number five, Stefanos Tsitsipas. Championship point on the Rublev serve. Rublev reaches up, serves out wide, misses. Second serve for the Greek to eye up on championship point to win his first Masters title. Second serve goes down the tee, runs round, places the forehead through the middle of the court. The inside-out forehand under the service line from Rublev. Championship point to Tsitsipas, who lays into his backhand to Rublev's inside-in forehand. The stretch from Tsitsipas, the backhand cross-court from Rublev, the backhand flick from Tsitsipas, the backhand cross-court misses from Andre Rublev. And it's game, set and title one from Stefanos Tsitsipas for his first Masters title. And a third attempt, Tsitsipas, whose head is in the clay, but comes a Masters winner. It's his sixth career title, it's his first of 2021, and it consolidates his place as the world number five. And he's done it in style. Just over an hour on the match clock as the players embrace at the net. Tsitsipas, winner in Monte Carlo. 6-3, 6-3. Stefanos, it feels like you've been building towards this moment for a very long time. It's a first Masters 1000 title. What does it mean to you, this moment? Had an unbelievable week in Monte Carlo, and uh, I can't describe uh, the feelings right now. I'm overwhelmed by so many different emotions and uh, nostalgia. Uh, it's it's incredible that I'm able to uh, to be in the position I am, and um, I think uh, we both deserve being in the final and, and put out a, an amazing fight, an amazing show uh, for the few people that came to watch. But uh, just generally, like I, I would consider it as the week of my life so far. Yeah, you and Andre are the only players on tour with more than 20 wins between you. How well is he playing out, uh, out there today and how tough is he to beat these days? I knew he was going to be a very difficult opponent to face and there was a lot of nerves uh, coming into that match. Uh, I've played him in the past. You know, he we always want to bring the best out of us uh, when play, uh, facing each other. So playing Andre was a very difficult uh, uh, thing to do today, uh, considering also that it was a final and, you know, I think there's extra... Um, extra stress and extra um, importance in the match that we had to play. So definitely um, just, uh, just proud of, of, the, of the way I, I managed to, uh, uh, to behave and uh, be out on the court today. Yeah, and, and it obviously gets that first Masters 1000 title under your belt, gives you a massive boost, doesn't it, as we get into this really busy clay court swing now? Uh, of course, uh, clay, court started, uh, clay court season couldn't start, couldn't start uh, better, and uh, it's, it's, it's the best thing right now, winning my first uh, Masters 1000, and uh, it's even more special doing it here on home soil, Monte Carlo, and uh, doing it on clay, which is my favourite surface. Many congratulations to the new Rolex Monte Carlo Masters champion, Stefanos Tsitsipas, the latest name to be etched onto the ATP Masters Series Hall of Fame for the first time. I'm Seb Lozier, welcome to the latest podcast, and it's a hard-hitting half hour that we can promise you this week. We'll hear from one of the finest coaches on tour, and we will have the views of the man right at the top of the ATP, Chairman Andrea Gaudenzi. He broaches the hot potato topics of prize money and a separate players' union. But first... Let's look back at the here and now. ATP tennis radio commentators Gigi Salmon and Miles McLagan were in the box for today's final and look back on where the Monte Carlo showpiece was won and lost. It all starts in Monte Carlo. The words written on the camera lens by the 2021 Rolex Monte Carlo Masters champion Stefanos Tsitsipas and Miles McLagan following performance like that. Hour and 11 minutes, 6-3, 6-3 against Andre Rublev. You cannot doubt what the Greek is saying. You can't, no. It's, it's fitting. It feels like it, it belongs. And uh, he played an 
a lot of excellent tennis this week. I mean, a, a route through is you do get occasions when players win a tournament fairly comfortably, but it's never as, as comfortable as it looks on 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 the on the draw sheet on the scoreboards. There was a, there's moments along the way that he's come out on top of, but boy, the way he's moved, the way he's he's concentrated, his uh, how driven he's been has been extremely impressive. Not for one second did he take his foot off the gas from the moment that he won the toss and said he was going to serve. Very much the case. He, he made his intent uh, clear early and uh, it was to absorb what Rublev had to throw at him and then get that big forehand into play. We got a, we got a glimpse of it yesterday against uh, David Goff, uh, sorry, against uh, Dan Evans when he's able to just push him around and, and really bully, uh, bully the Briton. It was the same again today. It took a little longer occasionally to turn that, uh, those points around, but uh, boy, when he got that shot into play, it was a colossal weapon. He's now 22 and five, his win-loss record for 2021. He said, my, my aim is to reach the quarterfinal or better at all the tournaments I play, and he's done that and the six events through this year. He's also the first player to win a first Masters title without dropping a set since Grigor Dimitrov, Cincinnati 2017. Djokovic also did it, that was Miami in 2007. He has been, yes, there was the, the retirement of Alejandro Davidovic Fikina at the start of the second set, where things were starting to look interesting, but he has done it from the off. Straight sets, laser focus, concentration, sharp from the beginning of this week. It, it really has been the case, and yeah, his, his he should have set higher goals, shouldn't he? Just a quarterfinals, <laughs> he should have set it way higher than that if he's achieving it that easily. But yes, just the, the, the wins he's getting, he's, he's making himself very, very tough to, to be beaten. It's taking you know some of the best players playing their best tennis to, to do that. And you know you keep knocking on the door every week. Eventually you'll walk through it as as he's done here. And he's taken advantage perhaps of you know not having to play some of the biggest names in the draw. But but that's often the case. You could go back through draws forever and and look at those sort of reasons. You've still got to get the job done. And uh, you know as you said that the the foot went uh, onto the pedal early on and it never came off. There's a couple of just maybe reactions actions as he went to a break up in the third where uh, a 30 all point and you thought well this is maybe a chance for Rublev if he can just get a break point get back onto to level terms he you know he might be able to make this tricky but Sitzbass came out on top and all those sort of situations as he's done for the week you mentioned his match against Davidic for Kina that started to get a little sticky yeah. for, for a while and he did probably lose a little bit of concentration because the, the, the Spaniard had, was str struggling with a, a left quad injury and uh, but still seemed able to play was swinging away and um, Sitzbass gave up the break there but quickly regrouped he wasn't going to let that get in his way and Christian Garin before that is a you know tricky clay quarter he was a I think a, a break up in the second set there and uh, was was just pegged back but bounced back immediately with, with the break so uh, the, the the mental resilience has been absolutely top-notch for Sitsipas this week and very easy to take your eye off the ball once you become the favorite in the tournament but nothing of the sort Andre Rublev, disappointment in the immediate aftermath, but what a week that the Russian, well, what a year he's having, but what a week he's had on the clay of Monte Carlo. 
what a week yeah absolutely probably a little tired right now and a little disappointed that he wasn't able to make more a match of it you know having said that it was still one of those matches i, I felt with a little bit of luck uh, for rublev or a little bit of bad luck for for Sitsabas, oh. he, he could change around and 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 we might see a different course of events but it wasn't to be for rublev but as you said it's a week you know anytime you beat nadal on the clay especially in monte carlo you beat the the very tough and competitive roberto batista it's it's going to be a good week but uh he continues to build as as Sitsipas does you know his weeks his year has been phenomenal just racking up those wins and and it's not just this year for him it's been going since the the, the restart he's becoming very comfortable at the back end of big tournaments Yep, and he's the tour leader with 24 wins for 2021, and he has himself a title that was Rotterdam a little bit earlier on. But it's Stefanos Tsitsipas who will remain but consolidate his place as the world number five. He first came to the Monte Carlo Country Club at the age of six to win the tournament. Fast forward 2021, Stefanos Tsitsipas is the king in the Principality with that straight sets win over Andre Rublev. And we'll be back with Gigi and Miles later in the programme for the other main talking points to come out of this week. And we look ahead also to the rest of the European clay court swing. But first, we hear from one of the leading coaches in the world right now who's taken Andre Rublev's career to new heights this year, including now a first Masters final. Paul King spoke earlier in the week with Fernando Vicente. First of all, just this wonderful story that you've been together a few years now, just for people who, who don't know the background, just explain for us how a, a Spanish coach from Barcelona got together with a, a young Russian kid and, and when it all started. We started five years ago because Karen Kachanov was in, in Barcelona practicing in our academy. So Galo, who was coaching Karen, he told me there is a young guy looking for coach, blah, blah, blah. So I was working there because I decided to stop with Granoles. I wanted to stay in the academy. And then he offered me to to start with him. At the beginning, I say, I don't know, because I have family and I was struggling a bit with my wife and, you know, these kind of problems. So we start uh, in five, now it's going to be five years already. And yes, uh, was I meet him. We try for uh, two weeks, three weeks, and uh, everything starts to, to be good and that's all. I mean, it's a relatively long time for a coaching partnership to exist these days. Why do the two of you work so well as a team together, do you think? I mean, in the sense like it's too long for a coach and the relation. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a good, it's a good amount of time. So you see, sometimes you see a lot of coaching partnerships. No, Players sometimes change every the, few months. Sometimes. The thing was, I think he realised from the beginning that uh, he was working good. I mean, we start to improve in all the ways. His ranking start to improve. He believed on me. And then uh, the results come out, and uh, that's why I think is we're still together. But uh, I mean, in my opinion, to be the tennis coach is also even if the results sometimes are going well, if you don't have a really good relation and you don't have connection outside the court, it's tough to stay with somebody all that long. You know, it's important relation outside also on the court. Last year, and obviously the last well, last two years now, have been so difficult for, for the whole world. But how mm. tough was working together for you guys, obviously being based in different no, parts of the world? It was really tough, like everybody. They locked down in, in, in Spain, so we practiced a lot. It was a special year. And as soon it was tough mentally because you don't even know when you're going to start. So it was a strange situation. You don't know when the calendar is coming out. 
but as soon uh, calendar came out, I mean, Andre started to play better and better. The results so good, and uh, I mean, uh, we were we start to believe to to be qualified to the London. So we play week by week, and uh, was a very 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 nice. But at the same time, it was very stress stressful. What parts of his game were working particularly well last year? I know he had obviously that serious injury issue a couple of years ago, but since he's come back, he's just gone from strength to strength. No, the thing he, he gets strong. I mean, mentally he gets strong. Also, we work a lot in in, in body ways, and uh, he's tried to understand more how he's to play uh, directions. I mean, he have a, a good strokes, both sides, but uh, was playing wrong many times and behaving so so. And, uh, and everything is start to change. He he trusts much more on him. He start to win uh, easily matches that before was impossible. And uh, that's all. It's day by day and improving. Interesting to hear himself. He calls himself a lucky player. I mean, how do you sort of how do you analyze that? Do you think it's almost he doesn't believe in his own abilities? No, or something? I think he believes. But I mean, I don't know when he was saying this. I mean, lucky. I mean, for the moment, he feels like he's a. Is the first time you know what that uh, he reached that level, top ten, and f of course, at, at, in my opinion, he feel maybe a bit afraid that is uh, not good enough to stay for a long term in in that uh, in that spot, no. But we are thinking to try to to go a bit uh, forward to 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 jump because now also this year he started really good, so we are in a good position now. So uh, we just keep working hard, and that's all. So the final piece of the jigsaw is maybe just the mental side. And, and what is great to see, he always seems to sm uh, play with a smile on his face most of the time. Mental, well. I mean, he's Russian and mental, men mentally looks like he's not uh, strong mentally, maybe on court because he looks like, uh, it's, but it's only the way he behaves on court. Because at, at the end, he never think a match. He's always fighting. He's trying to figure it out uh, to win. And uh, so it's not about mentally, it's not, not not that bad. I mean, uh, he plays seven finals. He won seven finals. So mentally, it's not that. Uh, it's not a weakness. It's, a, it's like my opinion. His own ability on court was obviously recognised for you last year. You were voted for the Coach of the Year award by your peers. What did that mean to you personally to no, have that award? To me, the, the, I mean, I'm happy, you know, because at the end, uh, all the people who was voting was uh, coaches and uh, and uh, I think players. I, I don't really know exactly, but for me, it's nothing changed in the sense like I, I know that I'm doing good job, and I and, and I don't need to to win this kind of uh, I don't know how you say this kind of trophy or. Uh, but this an, and at the end is an is an honor to to get this uh, trophy and uh, that's is work and I think because the coaches they they see how. We've been working the last five years. Uh, they really appreciate it that uh, we, we don't split. We keep going together and this is the main thing. Yeah, as you say, it's an incredibly exciting time. Five titles last year, first appearance at the ATP Finals, quarterfinals in the last three Grand Slams and he finished as number eight in the world. I mean, it's exciting times, but what are the ne next targets? What, how far can he go? He's excited, but at the end, I wanted him to understand how is this sport, you know, because at the end, you are eight. You want to be seven. You want to be six. It's always motivated, Andre. It's not okay. Maybe he can tell you, okay, I'm happy, but but it's about lifestyle. You need to be healthy. You need to choose calendar better. You need to arrive to the big events in a better conditions because we did mistakes in in the calendar way. 
Uh, Andre is a guy that who wants to play everything, you know, he loves to play, but sometimes it's too much and uh, it's only these things. I wanted to ask you as well, of course, it's, it's been well documented how, how well the Russians are doing at the moment, haven't we? See, Karen faded slightly recently, but obviously uh, obviously uh, Daniel there and, and now Karatsev as well. Why do you think we're seeing such a strong run from all these Russians, although although Andre doesn't seem to be enjoying playing them himself at the moment? The first thing, the first thing is they, they have talent. And then if you work well, it's impossible to don't improve. And if you have one face, like uh, I think was a start, uh, was Karen who start playing better, and the other guys, they have some dabs, or uh, I don't know if I will make it or no. They they move in the right places to, to to practice. In my opinion, they take the right persons or the right coaches, and then it's it's, it's like a you know a trial. You know, you believe the other one believe, and also now Karatsev uh, he wake up after a few years, but his talent was already there, so it's not like he changed nothing special. He start to believe a bit more and. It's a nice to see these kind of guys uh, fighting each other to and improving because this kind of fight is healthy for everybody. No? Does Andre enjoy playing them? I know he's lost the, the last couple of the last sort of couple of months, but does he enjoy playing them? They seem to have a good relationship in terms of ATP yeah. Cup, ATP Cup, etc. Really good relation. I know Karatsev Aslan before, and everybody knows him. His potential, his uh, kind of strokes, he hit forehand, backhand, serve, everything good. But was uh, he changed? something on his mind and that's all because everybody respect uh, i mean it's not because he was 100 in the wall nobody respect in tennis everybody respect everybody and uh, we know the ranking you have to show out in the on the court how much do you enjoy the challenge as a coach when you first come to this this time of year because it is a big switch in in mentality and tactics isn't it no i enjoy a lot because uh, when you have one one player like andy that is uh, thinking on, on tennis all day at the end he he give it to you th- this energy to go on, on court and to try to improve. So for me, my challenge is in every practice to try to improve him in all the ways. I know there is many things to improve, it's not enough. That's why I'm so happy too, because sometimes you, you, you work with a player and you don't see any room to improve. And uh, I think uh, and they have still have uh, a lot of room to improve. Fernando Vicente, coach to the Rolex Monte Carlo Masters finalist, Andre Rublev. So we have another first-time Masters champion, but by no means was that the only notable talking point to come out of the week in Monte Carlo. Gigi Salmon and Miles McLagan have been rounding up the rest. We haven't been short of things to talk about this week, have we? We have not, no. Where, where would you like to... Shall I throw some things at you, or have you got a place you'd like to start? There's a couple of ideas. I mean, we, we of, apart from the great tennis, of course, we uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime. There's a bit of interest there, the, the, yeah, the tie-up yeah. with Uncle Tony. How is that going to go? They haven't got off to the best start, and sometimes that you know can make a difference because you want a good start to get uh, to get some confidence in your coach. But that was a tough match against it was Christian Garin. He, he was up, but, uh, you know, where's that going to go? There's yeah, an yeah. intrigue. Um, and then, of course, you know, Good look at Kasparud this week. We've obviously with some new uh, younger players featuring in the Masters 1000 events. He hasn't been a name we've talked about so much recently before this week, but boy, oh boy, he he, he was tough and came through a couple of good matches himself. Uh, Pablo Carreño Busta and, and Fornini, last year's champion, who, uh, well, the, 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 the last champion, I should say, back in 2019. So, um, you know, there are a couple of impressive results there. Um, who else did we have that was showing some good form? And then, of course, Davidic Fakina enjoyed watching some of his really tennis. Really enjoyed I mean, watching him play. It was a little unfortunate that he, he 
we were, straight, we were surprised, weren't we? Because the day before, we'd seen him roll his ankle a couple of times against Lucas Puy, and he refused to ask for the physio. And then the physio eventually came out, and it was for Luca Puy. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the next day, he was uh, he was playing some fiery tennis, as he does. He's, he's got a good game, this uh, uh, Davidic Fokina. And um, the left quad let him down, and perhaps just the sort of the stress, the energy of getting to the back end of, of a big event took its toll. So more to watch out for him in the clay courts and then of course the story of dan evans i mean what what a run that was four wins on clay to a level four wins at masters before <laughs> before this week and then he gets himself through not just to the the semi-finals of the singles but the finals of the doubles for a back-to-back -back consecutive Masters doubles finals with <laughs> Neil Skupski. If you've got that. And, uh, <laughs> but on the way to the singles, of course, a win over Djokovic, which was mighty impressive. And, you you know, you watch it and thinking, how long is this going to last? And it lasted and lasted. And he stayed strong and he, he competed very, very hard. He's another player who's, who's had a, a good year and uh, perhaps not quite in the same level as Sitsipas and Rublev, but it's, uh, the, the wins are mounting up. And then he backed that up, which is almost equally impressive with a win over David Goffin, who'd been playing very well up to that stage. And, you know, conditions were, uh, were not uh, picture perfect this week. There was, was a bit of breeze. It was cool and damp. And, you know, Evans has taken full advantage. So what a story that is. Yeah, but as a, as a coach, what is that then? He came in on a run of 10 defeats on clay. So, so what's changed? Because it's obviously always been there and he's had the game to work on the surface. And I know you mentioned the heavier conditions, but how does it suddenly all come together like that? Is it simply confidence? It's sport, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, that's the way it often works. It's not always easily explainable. But I, I think, you know, he, he obviously comes in with less pressure at this time of year on, on the clay and, you know, an ability to... Um, to to do different things on the court we've seen him take the rhythm away from his opponents and you know he, he was able to do that and again as we talked with Sitsipas you know things going his way there were things that went Evans's way and you know wouldn't surprise doesn't suddenly make him sort of you know third favorite for the French Open or anything I mean it wouldn't surprise me if he if he had a couple first round defeats I mean I, I you know I hope he goes on and has has plenty of success and and he might well do but um, you know sometimes just things go your way you feel good on the court the matchups are good for you those those key moments that in a match which can set the direction work your way you get a, a little net quarter you just happen to play a, a good point so um, and I think that the mentality of enjoying being out there rather than the sort of attitude of well I've got to play these Masters 1000 events I'll go um, you know I'll be home I'll, I'll make book dinner at home on Wednesday night because I'll be back well maybe not, not the case but that can also come with some pressure so um, I think it, it also gives a, an idea of just how tight these matches often are, how little there is between them. And it is about just getting those, winning those key points, that which the better players generally do. But if you have your week where you can win those key points, you can have an extremely impressive week. And another storyline, we didn't have them in Miami. We had them in Monte Carlo. You mentioned Novak Djokovic, who lost to Dan Evans. We had Rafa Nadal going for a, a 12th title here. And I, I thought 
a really nice insight from Andre Rublev when he was speaking after beating Nadal in three sets, 6-2 in the third. And he said, I cannot imagine what it's like to be that much of an overwhelming favourite, that much pressure on your shoulders every single time you step out onto a court and especially a clay court. It's something that these guys have had to deal with for a long, long time because, you know, the likes of Nadal and then, of course, Djokovic Federer have, have been favourites. And I think that's become something for that sort of outside noise. They, they know that yeah, yeah. Um, they, they've got to go out and, and play and perform every single time. And I think that's been part of a big part of Nadal's makeup that's made him so great. He, he takes nothing for, for granted. He, he's, he's fired up for every single match. And... Uh, they're always dealing with distractions. If you're at the top of any sport, I'm sure there's lots going on and you need to just sort of compartmentalize, sharpen that focus. But, you know, it's, it's not only, it's not only the, the, the expectations from outside, it's players know that they've got to play their best match so they, they can play with freedom and just throw everything at it and play super aggressive and they've got to fight that off time and time again which is perhaps more impressive. I'm not sure if it's going to make the short list of headlines but Miles McLaggen must do better in ATP mm. Tennis Radio Predictions Masters competition. I mean it's quite a long headline but is that fair to say? Yeah it's very fair yes. Yeah. So you're going to really look we're going to keep a close eye on Barcelona, because we've got Nadal, their top seed, sits past second seed. But we are back in action with commentary and predictions for Madrid rolling into Rome. So we're uh, going to have to do a little bit of, I don't know, are you going to get a bit tactical on this? Think about it. Well, you got it. Went with Nadal. Not often to get let down by Nadal on the clay. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, now, but now do you doubt him? That's the thing. Do you yeah. now doubt, Does everyone move away from Nadal thinking, well, hang on a second, it's over? Or do you stick with him? I, I'm going to stick with him, I think. You can't, I'm not going against the Dalton Clay, but there are definitely other names in the mix now. Yeah. And it's not just Djokovic and Vavrinka. There's some other names out there. Rude, extremely impressive. Of course, Sitsipash right in there. And then, you know, of course, Sinner. Will he catch fire one week? And, and all those other sorts of names out there. We've got it on record. Miles is going Nadal to win Madrid. It's an early call, but he's gone that way. And if he pulls out, remember, you get the lucky loser that steps into his place because it's all on record. Is that OK? Is that I'll let you know. I've got time. I can change until no, then, right? Sure you can change it because we've got it on record. I mean, that's the thing. But the exciting thing is, in terms of commentary, that we are going to be back covering Rome and before that Madrid because all roads, as we know, at this stage of the year, lead to Roland Garros. Thanks to Gigi Salmon and Miles McLagan, and be sure to join them and the rest of the team for live coverage from the next two Masters events coming up over the next few weeks. The Mutur Madrid Open and the Internazionale Biennale d'Italia in Rome. And we end the show this week with an Italian and a very busy one at that. ATP chairman Andrea Gaudenzi has been speaking in Monte Carlo about all manner of issues surrounding the tour at the moment. Andrea, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. What were some of the operational complexities involved in running an international tour during a pandemic that people may not necessarily know about? I mean, tennis, in its very nature, people are flying from all over the world, which I guess is one thing that's very different to most other sports. Yeah, it's dealing with local governments that have different rules. There's different rules for different entry points from different countries. So international travel adds a complexity which is huge. It's, uh, and then also the nature of the individual sport, the fact that we cannot go in one single site, like, for example, the NBA did with Florida, and, and have all the competition there back-to-back. -back. You know, we have tournaments, different continents all the time, in governments with different rules. So 
it's really, really complex. The ranking, the calendar, we basically made more changes to our structure in the last 14, 15 months that the ATP has probably done in the last 30 years. Uh, crisis management and, and constantly being reactive to new information has clearly demanded a lot of time and focus from management. How much bandwidth has that left for proactive strategic thinking and advancing the, the longer term vision for our sport? I do really think that in a moment of crisis, there is also the opportunity to actually rethink the structure of our sport, you know, relook into the foundation, the governance, the business. And that's an opportunity for, you know, looking into what can we improve, what's wrong with our sport. One of the things we highlighted, for example, in the beginning of, of my mandate is the fact that tennis relies too heavily on revenues from tickets. While most of our leagues, actually, the higher percentage of revenue is now media and data. So how can we change that? And obviously, we've been hit more than other sports, not only because we're global, but because we still, you know, the revenue of our tournaments are, in average, 45% coming from ticket holders. Describe what life has been like for the players on tour throughout the period. What, what has been done to make it easier? And what do you feel is the, the general sentiment currently amongst the playing group? It's very difficult to travel around and being in this restricted environment. You know, you're basically stuck between the hotel and the site. On top of that, there is the pay cuts that certainly doesn't have value. It's very, very difficult, but the alternative is not having any tennis. The alternative is not having any prize money. The alternative is no tournament. So it's the best we can do, and I think we have to be patient. On the other hand, the tournament lost a lot of money last year. And we're helping out this year also with subsidy on price money. We're trying our best, but there is no magic trick. We can't print money. We can't change the rules that the government are dictating. So we really try our best in a very difficult environment. And every rule, every decision we make has an impact either on a tournament or on the player's life. And we totally understand that we can't make everybody happy. You know, it's, it's a job cuts, salary cut. Uh, freedom restriction, lockdown, business is going down. I mean, it's, it's a very, very difficult moment, not just for tennis and the ATP Tour and tennis tournament, just for the world. I think, you know, we have to just have a little bit of patience and empathy and, and go through the storm. I do believe we are strong and we will succeed in the long term. Okay, so obviously we, you know, we know the prize money. It's no secret has been has been taken a hit because of the the lack of resources. What, what's the the plan for that going forwards? Look, we, we plan to increase the prize money as we did in in the first six months at the 250 and 500 categories. Every category has a different business model. Then the thousand is a little bit different. We're going to review for the second half of the year. The Grand Slam have been fundamental in sustaining the normal prize money level. And if we look at the overall average, including the Grand Slam, we are down in a cut between 20 23%, which is not so bad considering that tennis relies on almost half the revenue coming from ticketing. So that obviously mostly thanks to the Grand Slam and to the support the ATP has come in bringing. But it's the best we can do at the moment, and we will try to improve it in the second half of the year. We'll do our best. Also, hopefully, with some fans going back, and, and we have some more revenue coming from ticketing and coming back to a, to a normal environment. Uh, so it's been well, well documented, it's no secret, there's been a group of players that have broken away with this uh, the separate group. What, what is your thoughts on that and, and how much harm or could and is it doing to the sport? Well look, as I said many times, first of all I have a lot of sympathy for the players because I've been in their shoes. 
You know, I don't think that a separate association is the solution or it provides an as- a solution to our problems. As I said, the main issue is fragmentation. Now, that creates a further kind of fragmentation. What we need to do is stay united and work together and, and, and focus on the fans. That's the reality because this is where the money is coming from, from fans who buy our tickets, fans who actually watch on TV and pay subscription for the broadcasters, and they are also the target eyeball for our sponsors. So that's who we should really focus on. Now, can a separate association improve the life on tour of players? That's what the ATP does as well. And I think at the moment the players, they have a players council which they elect, whom elects three reps in the board of the ATP. And without the approval of the three reps, no big decisions can be taken. So they have, they are represented, they have a lot of power, but they need to understand that they also need to compromise with the counterpart. And they would need to compromise with the counterpart even if you actually create a complete separate association. You know, you will face the, the same very, very problem of you have a list of questions, of demands, the tournament says no, you still have to meet, negotiate and come to compromise. Whether you do it in the same flat or in separate forums, you still have to come to the same conclusion. So the ATP has a unique structure within sport, existing as a 50-50 partnership between the players and the tournaments, of course. Do you believe this structure is best suited to serve the sport in the long run? I do believe in the structure, and the structure can work if everybody is willing to compromise and support each other. Because, you know, tournaments need players, and players need the tournament. Tennis does require a heavy investment in infrastructure. And, you know, the business of actually putting up the show and production, broadcasters, sponsorship and all the management of the fans on site and corporate hospitality, it's quite a costly one, like any other sport, but tennis in particular, if you compare it to others like golf, for example, where the on-site expenses are much lower. But if you actually shift the focus in the bigger picture and what the opportunity is if we stay united and you focus on growing the pie... And obviously there is the element of WTA and Grand Slams that are part of the equation because we do speak to the same people, right? We speak to the same fans, we belong to the same storytelling from January till the end of the year. So there is a lot of value, I believe, in unifying that story and that message and also centralizing a lot of the services to players but also mostly to fans in terms of digital distribution, in terms of commercial rights aggregation, whether it's media or data, sponsorship, virtual advertising, all of that. So we sell the same product, we belong to the same storytelling. There is also a lot of cost synergies that we could implement by actually working together instead of having this fragmented structure. But all of that requires a lot of discipline. It requires leaving egos aside most of the time, and it requires, you know, not focusing on your own individual interest, but shifting the focus into the greater good and the collective interest. Because the reality is that what we currently deliver is about 1% of the global media sports market. And on the other hand, we are the number four sports in the world with over a billion fans. So we're clearly under-monetizing. Well, let's imagine a best-case scenario. The, the pandemic's behind us and tennis is back to operating fully as normal. What are the long-time projects that you're most excited to be advancing within the sport? Unifying the governance and getting everybody together to sell the sport as one product and govern the sport as one entity, it's my dream. Because as I said, 
we have different rules for different tournaments, but they belong to the same calendar, right? And fans don't want to, they don't really want to necessarily understand the complexity on the back end. They want to see top tennis player play a great game on TV. They want to have access on all the digital platforms. Potentially, they want to have tennis in one platform with a single say on experience. And they want to see stories about players outside the court. What are these guys about? What's their personality? What they do off court? You know, there's a major shift into non-live content, also distributed through social media. And, you know, you've seen docu-series from other sports. So that is what we should be really focusing on in, in selling the sport, in, in trying to engage a wider audience throughout the world. That's the opportunity. ATP chairman. Andrea Gaudenzi. That is it for this week. I'll be back next weekend with more exclusive interviews with players and coaches on tour. In the meantime, the tour moves on to Barcelona, Belgrade, Munich and Estoril before the third Masters 1000 starts in Madrid. Remember, you can catch all the action from those events live on Tennis TV. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis. Tennis.